Elizabeth Holmes tried to revolutionize blood testing. In 2004, she dropped out of Stanford to found a company that would come to be called Theranos. After almost a decade of product development, Theranos began to claim in 2013 that using its proprietary Edison machine, it could perform dozens of diagnostic tests using just a few drops of blood pricked from a finger. A major blood testing partnership with Walgreens followed. Holmes, Theranos, and the Edison attracted immense publicity. The startup also attracted prominent directors, such as former Secretary of Defense James Mattis, and prominent investors, such as Rupert Murdoch. It all began to fall apart in October 2015, when the Wall Street Journal published an investigative report finding that many of Theranos' tests were performed on conventional commercial blood testing equipment that Theranos possibly engaged in unethical practices, such as diluting blood samples for testing, and that many of, the, many of the Edison tests were of questionable accuracy. In 2018, the federal government indicted Holmes and her fellow Theranos executive and former boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, for wire fraud. Holmes's trial is set to begin at last later this month. Welcome to a special edition perhaps we can call it a true crime edition, depending on the outcome of the trial, of the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Here to discuss Holmes's rise, fall, and upcoming trial is Sarah Randazzo, a reporter with the same famed Wall Street Journal that first broke this story. Sarah, it is such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite topical. I mean, you even had to uh, delay slightly this recording to write an article on the case this morning. So uh, it's top of the news and it's, it's great to have you here. For a lot of people, I bet, though, uh, the rise and fall of Theranos is pretty ancient history, actually. I mean, John Carreyou's Wall Street Journal article raising questions about Theranos, uh, it came out almost six years ago now. Um, and of course, all of this happened, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, so could you give us a little refresher, you know, start us off with the rise, you know, beyond the very skeletal outline I just provided, what should we know about Elizabeth Holmes and what she set out to do? Yeah, so Elizabeth Holmes was a classic startup uh, founder story. She, like you said, dropped out of college and had this grand idea that she set about to achieve. And her big mission was to put medical information into patients' hands. She thought you should be able to go get medical testing done yourself without getting a doctor's order first. She wanted it to be cheaper and notably less scary. She didn't want people to need these big needles to get blood tests. And so her big um, pitch was that she would be able to draw blood out of a fingertip, which was going to be a lot easier for people and uh, overcome people who didn't want to go get blood work done. And one of her big catchphrases was that no one should have to say goodbye to a loved one too soon. And this was the theme that really tied her mission together was that she said she would uh, do this new, easier type of blood test that uh, would be accessible to all. And her pitch was very compelling. She attracted hundreds of millions of dollars in investments from some big name investors. At one point, the company was worth as much as $9 billion. Her board was this who's who of kind of older men who, who bought into this pitch, including Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, Jim Mattis. So it really attracted a lot of big names and a lot of big money. The, you mentioned right off the bat, you know, some of the investors and, you know, 
um, certainly not the first to remark that in those list of people that you you mentioned, you know, there's there's really nobody with actual tech savvy or, or bioengineering savvy. And the more you look into this, the the more and you know, this is 2020 hindsight, but that there was really nobody there um, to use a blood analogy with their finger on the pulse, you know, really uh, with a knowledge of what was going on behind closed doors here. So, um, you know, how did it all go south? Yeah, that's certainly something that's been out there with both the investors and the board of directors that there were a lot of big names, but people that weren't in this space who could really critically look at the, the medicine and so, or the science behind it. Uh, and so the Wall Street Journal first started reporting in fall 2015 on a bunch of problems that my uh, former colleague, John Kerry Rue was finding that the proprietary device, this Edison that she was talking about wasn't really reliable. And actually most of the testing they were doing wasn't being done on the Edison at all. It was being done on these commercial devices they were buying and, and housing in a separate lab at, at their headquarters and not really telling people they were using them. Uh, some of these machines they were actually modifying so that they could still take finger prick blood. And then, like you said, we're diluting them and running them on commercial machines as a bit of a workaround. Uh, the company said it offered 240 tests, but our reporting showed that they were only using the Edison on a small handful of those. Um, and so after the journal started probing this and, and writing a series of articles, things started kind of falling out of their favor pretty quickly. First, the FDA got involved and said they couldn't use what they called these nanotainers, which were the tiny uh, vials that they would collect the finger prick blood in. So that was a setback. Then their partners, Walgreens and Safeway, backed out at, at some points. By early 2016, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services had inspected their lab and came out with some blistering reports, finding problems in the labs. Fast forward to 2018, they had an SEC investigation and settlement, and then the criminal charges were brought, and that ultimately led the company to dissolve. So companies fail all the time. Uh, our system is set up to encourage you know, risk-taking, limited liability rules and such are you know, there to ensure that um, you know, you're not necessarily punished just because you set out to uh, make a sort of moonshot product and it doesn't work out. So uh, why, why are there criminal charges here? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think the attention on the case got prosecutors' attention. But then once they dug in, they found what they say were not just embellishments or promises that could come true, but that they say Elizabeth Holmes and Sunny Balwani were actively lying to investors in a way that they're saying was a crime. Uh, and that included in these pitches, uh, you know, saying that this Edison device was actively doing all these tests that it wasn't. And also things like revenue projections claiming that they told investors they would make $100 million in revenue when they knew it was just a few hundred thousand, which is quite a bit different if you're investing in a company. Uh, the case is split into two batches of victims, investors and patients. And so on the patient side, they say that a lot of these advertisements they put out in Arizona were misleading in a way that ultimately they say was a, you know, was a crime that they were promising these tests were fast and accurate and reliable when, when they knew they weren't. And uh, maybe this is a little bit technical and it, it touches on the distinction between, you know, if you get charged with a crime in federal, uh, by the federal government or the state government, but the specific charges are wire fraud uh, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So how does, how does wire fraud specifically uh, come in here? Yeah, it's pretty wonky. And I'd be interested in your thoughts as a lawyer on the actual charge of wire fraud. But um, because from what I can tell from the indictment, it's basically 
the technical wire fraud charges are things like when an investor sent money across state lines into a Theranos bank account, that was uh, a wire that they said was fraudulent because they lied to get that money. And on the patient side, it's even uh, things in the indictment say there was a phone call to a patient giving them their test results. And that was the wire that they said was fraudulent. So the, you know, the technical details in the indictment are pretty specific, but they're being used to build this broader story about the deception that they say the company and Elizabeth Holtz did. No, I, I think you got it. I mean, it's it's once you, uh, you're doing something wrong and then the federal government figures out a way to, to say that you crossed state lines as you did it. And that's what brings the federal charges in. Um, well, I'm assuming that, that Holmes is not going to take the stand. Uh, I mean, it would certainly be out of the ordinary if she did in a, in a criminal trial. Are there likely to be any bombshell witnesses in the case? Um, or is it going to be more a matter of the government sort of methodically seeking to build a case on circumstantial evidence sort of piece by piece? Yeah, so so far we've gotten a list of more than 200 names that uh, came out actually in a filing where they're um, talking about how they're going to find the jury. And so uh, they had a sample questionnaire they were going to give potential jurors and included the name of all the potential witnesses so that jurors could see if they knew anyone. And so through that, we've gotten this real nice insight into who the potential witnesses will be. I don't think the government will have time to call 200 people or we'd be there even longer than the you know, 13 weeks they've said it's going to take. Um, and so you know, all of these names we're taking with some grain of salt, but there's a lot of former employees on there who the government has said could talk about kind of the culture of secrecy at the company. There's a lot of investors on there. The high profile directors like um, Kissinger and Mattis are on there. There's experts. They've The government has identified who they want to help walk jurors through the science and be a little bit of an explainer and go through all the details. So there's kind of these third-party experts. And then also there's former patients and doctors, uh, which the journal read about earlier this week. Uh, these are everyday people, mostly in Arizona, where they did most of their testing, who are planning to share stories uh, about tests they got that they said were inaccurate. And the judge actually just ruled today that he will allow in those former patients. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes had tried two or three different legal procedures to get them kicked out. But at this point, I think she's out of options. So those stories could be potentially pretty compelling. It's people who have said things like that they um, got tests indicating they were having a miscarriage and went through the emotional turmoil of that when in fact they were pregnant and had a baby, you know, months later, people whose tests said they could have cancer, you know, that weren't accurate, people who got false HIV positive tests. So you know, these will kind of be the real people patients or real people witnesses, but then there will also be more on the business and investor side as well, I think. And I should do a plug for, for your work that you guys actually reached out. I, I take it to these, some of these witnesses and uh, I, I don't obviously get the, I shouldn't say obviously, but I don't get the physical Wall Street Journal, but I, you were front page on the website yesterday. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that took us some time. We tried to call every witness that we identified on that list who seemed to be a doctor or patient. And we got a few of them to talk. And so, yeah, we put a story together uh, based on that. Um, and you, you mentioned Arizona. I mean, I, I had forgotten this until I was, I was looking into this just for this episode, but you know, Elizabeth Holmes went to Arizona and got up in front of legislators and basically got them to pass a law allowing uh, people to get blood tests there without a doctor's order. So that, is a big part of why specifically Arizona plays into this. Um, 
also like, so, so are you going to be um, attending the trial? Like, are you going to be there in the room? Yeah, between my colleague and I, there's a colleague in San Francisco, and we'll be splitting uh, the trial. So it's going to start at the end of August, and it'll run for at least 13 weeks. The court's only sitting three days a week for some reason, and so we'll kind of we will be there in court every day. Uh, the journal is so invested in the story that we want to see it through to the end. Well, that's I mean, you guys are you're the the name of the publication is sort of um, intertwined with the story itself at this point, which is which is kind of cool. Um, the, just this morning, I, I guess as a matter of background, I should say we're recording this on August 4th. Yeah. And just this morning you were writing about something you've mentioned several times that um, there's this big fight, I guess, is now basically resolved over a missing test database. A uh, lot of finger pointing about why those test results are not going to be coming in a trial. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and, and then also... Um, whether you think it really is a problem for the government that this this doesn't exist? Yeah, so it's been a really interesting sideshow is maybe the, the right word, where basically Theranos, when it existed, had uh, this big database, they called it the laboratory information system that they say recorded every test they did to patients and also these internal quality control tests, which are really important for labs. They do a test where a third party sets it up and they know the exact amount you're supposed to get on the test. And so you do these quality controls to see if your machines are matching with the amount that should be in this blood. And so they had all these quality control results and all these patient results, millions of them, they say, in this database. And so the government wanted a copy as it was putting its case together. And there was a lot of internal emails that have now come out from Theranos lawyers talking about, okay, how do we get the government this database? Are they going to know what to do with it? It's very complicated. It's not just like sending an Excel spreadsheet. It was this very complex technological thing. So finally, they turn over an encrypted hard drive and they say, okay, here you go. Here's the database. But what has come out and what the judge said today is that they didn't mention that there was a second encryption key that was also needed to access it that Theranos no longer seemed to have. And so then the government didn't have it. And so by the time the government tried to look at this database, they realized we don't have what it takes to access it. And so this was basically useless. And then at the same time, Theranos had its own copy, but just days after they turned over the copy to the government, they physically dismantled all the servers. They were shutting the company down. And so by taking apart all the servers, it apparently rendered this database totally useless and inoperable. And so where we're at now is that neither side has a copy of this database. And so both sides have used this to speculate a lot about what's in it and whether it would be helpful to their case. The judge concluded today that while Elizabeth Holmes has said it would be helpful to her case, it's not at all clear that would be true. And that in fact, you know, there might be things that would be negative to her. And so Really, there's not going to be any aggregate data from this database in the trial. But when the government uh, brought its indictment, it didn't even have a copy of the database yet. So clearly, they thought they had enough evidence at the time to bring the indictment. So they've said in filings, hey, this isn't the crucial piece of our case that you say it is. We clearly have other evidence that we plan to bring. And so, um, you know, they've tried to dismiss it a bit as, as not being a huge detriment to them. Well, if I got a test result that said, you know, I had some some really dangerous uh, disease and I didn't, I, you know, that would be emotionally traumatizing for sure. But um, is there any evidence of, of anybody actually uh, suffering a, a really, you know, bad health consequence as a result of a, of a false test, you know, not getting treatment they desperately needed or, or something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. And so far from what we've seen, it, it 
doesn't seem like there are many of those. It seems more that people got a result from Theranos or a couple of results from Theranos that indicated one thing. But of course, before you say someone has cancer, you're going to really verify that. So then they tended to go somewhere else to get another test. And then they would see that the problem wasn't actually true. And so uh, it seems like most, most patients were able to get results from other labs uh, that concluded different things before they made too many medical decisions. There's some indication in court filings that a doctor may have taken someone off of a medication or put them on a medication uh, prematurely, but uh, thankfully there don't seem to be any stories of a death or even a, a real adverse health consequence um, that they've pointed to so far. One thing I find really interesting about the, the case, there's so much drama around it. And I, I don't think anybody doubts that Elizabeth Holmes um, had a had a true a vision, a true dream, set out to do something truly revolutionary that um, it would be positive, and that a lot of people, even in the industry, you know, think is a very positive mission. Basically, trying to get um, the entire blood testing lab in a single device. I mean, it's basically trying to create. A weird analogy, but like an iPhone for lab testing kind of thing in terms of the amount of miniaturization. Um, and she did all of the classic startup stuff, you know, practically living in the office, you know, living the mission, um, some of the darker sides of, of that sort of culture. I mean, the company took a lot of really aggressive steps and sharp elbows in um trying to intimidate critics and uh, keep negative results under wraps. I mean, there's the, the case of Ian Gibbons, the scientist who committed suicide as he was facing deposition in a case because uh, presumably he felt pressured by Theranos um, about what to say or not say. Um, there's all of this sorted history and very little of it actually connects to a criminal charge and a criminal conviction. And once you get rid of all of that, very interesting side drama and really focus down on, okay, but, but what's the case that would cause you to go to prison? Uh, it's a lot less clear cut. I mean, so that was a long wind up to say, you know, what is Holmes's defense likely to be? What's her case in fighting these charges? Yeah, we've gotten a few indications. It's still, I think, going to be a bit of a, a wait and see when we get into the trial of, of what kind of defense she puts on. In general, her defense team has been really aggressive in trying to really slim down the case ahead of time. And they've had a little bit of success. Uh, the judge did cut out um, as victims, doctors and patients who didn't pay directly. They, he said if someone had insurance cover a test that, um, that that didn't make them a victim, they had to pay. So, you know, she's had a few pretrial wins, but I've been trying to think of what the defense could be. And I think because intent is so important to a criminal case, they could try to argue, you know, she thought she was doing something that did work and would work. And so there, you know, there was no fraudulent intent because she believed in the product and, and what it was doing. They've also, a, a ton of things in this case, I should add, have been under seal. And uh, the Wall Street Journal's owner, uh, Dow Jones, actually, our, our publisher, um, we filed a motion last week to, to fight the unsealing in the case. And so a lot of things related to her defense have been filed under seal. So we have a limited view, but she's um, said that she could file or could put on a mental health uh, defect defense, which is essentially saying there was um, you know, some kind of mental condition. You know, it's not quite an insanity defense, but something that, um, you know, would 
uh, impact or potential guilt. And it, it seems like that mental health defense could be pointed towards Sonia Balwani um, and saying that that's something about his influence over her, uh, you know, impacted things. But there's just so little that's come out in filings. We're not totally sure. Yeah, I mean, I won't put you on the spot to speculate. I've read a lot of stuff suggesting that she's going to argue that Sonny Balwani made her uh, sort of his cat's paw, that, that he was running the show. And um, my, my personal opinion is that seems really implausible. I mean, if you look at uh, the reporters who were covering this for Forbes or the New Yorker during her rise, um, if anything, they said the opposite, that, you know, she, he, he was sort of enthralled to her. But again, you know, everything I'm saying, this is one of the funny things about a trial. Um, there's often a lot of drama and a lot of facts and a lot of context that exist in the wider culture in a big case like this that don't come into the courtroom. Um, and what jurors see can often be very different from, um, you know, sort of the speculations I'm doing right now. And I feel like when you get into the, the courtroom, it can often actually be very dry and you're kind of like, wait, what, what is this? This is not the big drama that I was expecting. And so I'm very interested to see yeah, how the case unfolds and how dramatic or not it does seem uh, when they start putting on their evidence. Yeah, I will be interested to see if the wider culture of Silicon Valley gets put on trial. I mean, if her attorneys try to do that and if she, if they do, you know, if the judge shuts it down, um, you could almost say, I, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but that the, the walk over broken glass to succeed culture of um, the Silicon Valley tech world is the mental defect. Um, you know, there's so much pressure to to meet the milestone that you gradually slip and end up doing anything. Um, you know, I don't wouldn't expect the judge to allow any of that kind of stuff to go in there, but it's it's sort of there in the background. Definitely. Um, well, if she is convicted, uh, does she? I, well, she faces prison time. How much prison time does she potentially face? Is that potentially likely? And then, of course, there's the wild card that you know, this trial was delayed so she could have a child. Is that potentially going to have an effect if she's convicted on what the sentence might be? Yeah, all good questions. And it, it, from my understanding, she could face 20 years in prison if convicted. Um, and there also could be financial uh, repercussions. They could ask for restitution to victims and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, there could be a big uh, dollar amount she's asked to pay in, in addition to the prison time. Um, and yeah, on the, on the baby, I think it would just depend you know, how the judge factors that in. I'm sure it would come up in the, the pre-sentencing, uh, you know, memos and things that she would file if she is convicted. Uh, they would probably try to say, you know, she needs to be out of prison to care for a child. I, I think courts view that type of thing um, in different ways, depending on the judge. Yeah, certainly in my own experience as a lawyer, the fact that there's a, a you know, a 20 year maximum on the books, it means you know, it's very unlikely she would actually face anything approaching that. But we'll just, I mean, obviously this is a step ahead of ourselves uh, given that she hasn't even been convicted yet. But um, what's the connection here to uh, David Boyce? You know, and actually I should mention, you've covered Boyce Schiller, uh, the law firm and some of its recent uh, travails in other aspects of your reporting, major, major uh, white shoe law firm uh, led by, by David Boyd, a storied lawyer, but he represented Theranos and, and Holmes. I, I don't know if he represented her personally, but um, I mentioned earlier that they had, you know, they undertook some sharp elbowed tactics. He was kind of at the center of, of some of those. 
Um, does he have reason to sweat about what might come out at this trial? Yes, I mean, he is on this potential witness list that I mentioned, so we could see him in court. And actually the question of whether he was Elizabeth's lawyer in addition to Theranos that you asked was actually something that got um, kind of put through the ringer in court. There's a series of emails that he apparently sent to Elizabeth Holmes that she wanted to keep out of the trial. And so she was arguing they were protected by attorney-client privilege, but the judge ultimately ruled that Theranos was his client and Theranos waived the privilege. And so she couldn't try to keep them out. So it was kind of an interesting uh, sideshow for people who want to be in the weeds on attorney-client privilege issues um, on you know, kind of how far that protection goes when you have a criminal case. And so there's these emails he sent that sound like they might be coming into the trial uh, that the prosecutors have. And he basically represented the company and then even sat on the board of directors briefly and then had a falling out with them um, and before the company dissolved was no longer involved. And so, um, you know, he's not quite a critic at this point, but he's not quite a, a loyalist. He's somewhere, you know, he, he's kind of this in-between figure. And so, yeah, we could see him as a witness, I'd say. I just, there's so much of interest, I've touched on this multiple times already, of, of um, the culture of trying to get a company off the ground that may or may not connect to the trial. I mean, uh, just speaking from my own experience in life as a lawyer, when you're going, say, to trial, um, big, big trial, often there are multiple moments along the way where it looks like everything is going to just... Um, completely blow up. Like, like things aren't put together. Things aren't ready. It's going to be a total disaster. Uh, you're, I don't know. You're going to get sued for malpractice because just balls are getting dropped. And it's just, it, it's kind of the fog of war in litigation like that. And I would imagine I've never worked for a startup, but I would imagine it's a bit like that. Um, and where is that line between, uh, it feels like chaos, but we're gonna, um, you know, we're going to pull it off versus we are defrauding people. It's just so fascinating. And we'll see to what degree this trial sort of sheds light on, on where that line should be. Um, you know, my question for you is in the event of a conviction, I mean, do you think there's a larger story here, um, you know, as a reporter of, of the fake it till you make it kind of culture in Silicon Valley, do you think it's likely to be a larger commentary on that? Or, or should we really view it in a more limited context of, of just the facts of this case? Yeah, I, I certainly think that's the backdrop. And depending on how the evidence goes and how the trial goes, you know, it could bring a broader lesson for Silicon Valley, or it could end up looking super specific. But I do think there is something different in the medical space than if you're making an app or a retail website or something else where if it doesn't work, it ultimately doesn't matter, life moves on. But when you're dealing with patients and people's health, you really shouldn't go to market until that's ready. And so I think that's a broader message that, that could come out. You know, It could be more of a lesson for, for companies in the health uh, tech space, which I think is a frothy area right now. So there, you know, there could be some lessons for companies in that space. Well, there's a discussion of sort of um, bits versus atoms and Silicon Valley doing well with bits. And maybe the warning will be, you know, be careful when you move into atoms. But um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been very interesting. I'll be I, for one, will be watching your work very closely. And I recommend that everybody else do so as well as you cover this trial. And uh, maybe, you know, we can have you on for a, uh, a postmortem afterwards or, you know, we'll, we'll see what, it, what goes on. 
Yeah, it could be 2022 at this point when, uh, when it's at all the over, but... we, could, we could do a preview for Sonny Balwani's trial, which I don't think I've yet mentioned. He's scheduled to go to trial next year, and I don't know what his plan would be if she gets convicted. But um, it it, yeah. it promises to drag out, you know, for a while. This could be an interesting story, actually, for years to come. We'll see. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Sarah, thank you for your time again. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.